0: Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting, and I'm joined today by Sarah Ratcliffe, who is Chief Exec of the Better Buildings Partnership, and by Janine Cole, who is Director of Sustainability for Great Portland Estates. Sarah, good to see you. Janine, thank you also for coming in today. Let's start with uh, COP26, obviously, coming up very, very soon. Sarah, you're going to be there with BBP, uh, hosting, running some events. Tell us a little bit about what you're expecting from COP26. What does good look like and what difference is it going to make?
1: I think obviously the first thing to say is that COP26 is an annual event and what it's really good about is raising climate change up the agenda on a global level, both politically and for society as a whole. So I think for me, it will be the first time I've been to COP. So I'm really interested to see what that looks like, to get a feel for all the different sectors of society that are going to be there and what their priorities and and challenges are. For the BBP, obviously, what we're trying to do is make sure that real estate and particularly commercial real estate sector has a voice at COP. What does good look like? I think for me, what good looks like is going beyond the rhetoric, going beyond the high level commitments to actually being able to see. Clear actions coming out of COP, clear commitments, and a clear pathway as to how we're going to deliver those. There are obviously lots of different types of organisations there, so there are political commitments that we'll be looking for, but also, of course, businesses there in full force as well. Mm. So, I'd be looking to see some clear commitments from the business community.
0: Well, let's let's bring in Janine Cole at this point. So, you are the business community for this podcast, Janine great portland estates as many people will know 2.5 billion pounds assets largely offices your listed company what are you doing at the minute obviously you've been pretty progressive over the last few years in, in moving things forward what are you expecting to change after the event
2: i think what's interesting about cop is the focus on finance finance has a huge impact on real estate You only need to look at what's come out of the EU, the EU taxonomy, which in effect defines what green means.
0: Explain what that is for people that might think it's something to do with stuffed animals.
2: So, the EU taxonomy is basically a piece of legislation that, amongst other things, defines what businesses or what investors can define as green. And so, for the purposes of the built environment, one of the parameters they use is the epc so the energy performance certificate rating of a building so the, the problem e- with that is
0: obviously it's a static rating a single point in time often done at point of a transaction point of planning and it's not really fit for purpose anymore is it
2: well no it's not and the other problem with applying that is an eu law is that it does vary, the way in which energy performance certificates are done across the EU varies from one country to another. Mm. So often the sort of parallel between one country and another isn't there. The other issue is that it's driving the due diligence that investors have to do to prove that the funds that they're investing in are green, as defined by the EU taxonomy. And so I think what is going to be really interesting is to see what track that takes through COP. And there are a number of... So, Mark Carney has been heavily involved in COP26 and so interesting to see where that takes it. We have concerns about the way in which it's gone so far because I think part of the problem is if you legislate too quickly, it can drive unintended consequences. So what
0: specifically could drive unintended consequences and what could those consequences be?
2: Well, so I think if you define green as being an EPCB rated building, then does that drive people to demolish buildings more? Does that then drive people to do new build? Because by actually looking at retrofitting, you may not be able to get the building to a B rating. And so then if that drives people to do new build, your unintended consequence is you've got much more embodied carbon. Therefore, carbon emissions could potentially go up as opposed to down. And so that's one thing that the sort of industry needs to wrestle with and is wrestling with at the moment.
0: So this move towards a refurb 1st culture, which many people are calling for, the architects, journals, is getting behind this in a a big way. But to some extent, it's something that the GP's always, always had front and centre of its business strategy, isn't it?
2: Yeah, and we... our business model is that we take Well, creating buildings, value from <laughs> yeah, right? Unlocking potential. So we bring buildings into the portfolio and we look at how we can refurbish the building or redevelop the building. Mm. And what we tend to do is then create a sustainable building and often will then sell it. So that has a mm. another implication because actually what our investors want to see is more and more EPC A and B rated buildings within our portfolio but if you sell the buildings and you have that business model the data suggests mm. that your portfolio is becoming less sustainable yeah when actually what you're doing is you're retrofitting buildings making them more sustainable then someone else will come and buy them and that sits in their portfolio and so they portfolio becomes greener if that yeah. makes sense yeah, it does. so we've done so, the retrofitting for them
0: so again i mean just just before we move on from that the the best example of a, of a live project is probably 50 finsbury square isn't it yes which you've recently let to inmos at.
2: so 50 finsbury square is a great example where the building had good bones and what we were able to do is complete it as a refurbishment project The interesting part of 50 Finchby Square as well is that some occupiers didn't look at the building because it wasn't new build. Yet actually, once the building is completed, it will, to all intents and purposes, feel like a new building. We've done things like retained the glazing. That's massively reduced the embodied carbon. And by doing that, we will have our first net zero carbon building within the portfolio. The
0: additional carbon you've expended on it. I mean, it's it's not going to have reduced it, is it? But it, it, well, will, it, will, it, will it will reduce be be the amount you've had to use in in doing the development.
2: Yeah. So if you do a new build project, you need a new it glazing. Be, yeah. And yeah, yeah. Um, and so, so why why
0: do you why do you think that is? I mean, do you think and and this this is maybe something that will come on to now with Sarah. This is why I wanted to ask the other questions. So Sarah, I'm not I'm very sorry, I'm not ignoring you. But but the reason I was keen to bring this point out is because ultimately you can only do so much as the the investor and the developer. You need the agents, the sales guys in the market to go. Hey, Imasa. hey, Facebook, hey, whoever, this is a super building for all of these reasons. And and what you're suggesting, Janine Cole, is that even though you've actually gone above and beyond and you've created a building that's got far less additional embodied carbon than, than a comparable quality build, people aren't looking at it because it doesn't tick a couple of boxes.
2: Because in some cases, and not all, and I think this is part of it, It's also part of our obligation as well to help talk to potential customers about our buildings and say why this will be a great space for them to occupy. So it does in some way sit with us to help push that conversation along, Mm. but it is about what occupiers are being told their employees want from their workplace and they're being told it's floor-to-ceiling heights of a certain measurements, well-being is kind of front and centre and they believe that that's to do with glazing and it's to do with access to terraces. And actually mm. we've been able to offer a lot of that through 50 Finsbury Square.
0: Is there a dog parlour in 50 Finsbury Square? That would be the question some people would be asking listen to this.
2: We are having an increasing number of dogs within our buildings actually. <laughs>
0: Let's go, we'll come on to dog parlours in a minute. Sarah Ratcliffe, I'm interested this point on how, listening to Janine's uh, explanation about the building in Finsbury Square, what opportunity is there for, a, for better understanding to start to permeate through the, uh, the real estate industry and particularly on, in the advisory arena?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what Janine sort of pointed to really is one of the fundamental challenges with the industry that we operate in commercial real estate is that it's hugely fragmented. And what that means is that all of the different stakeholders have slightly different objectives that they're trying to achieve articulated in different ways. And I think one of the things that needs to happen is there needs to be greater alignment around specifically climate change ambitions and that that alignment needs to be sought by all parties involved with the building so it needs to involve developers like gpe investors it also needs to involve the occupiers and indeed the agents Mm. and they all need to align and collaborate around that shared objective to make it happen
0: so you set out a climate commitment in 2019 you've now got 27 signatories to that what does that say and what are those twenty-seven people committing to do?
1: Yeah, so the BBP climate commitment was driven by our members. That's the first thing. And to your say. members,
0: just for clarity, yeah. are, are principally they're all developers, so it's not all
1: defined as being property owners of some yeah. in some way, shape, or form. So fund managers, big propcos, big REITs, etc. Yeah,
0: and uh, and and in terms of that memberships, so you're not you're not including all the architects, advisors, and and.
1: No, the BBP very clearly focuses on our membership model, and it's in our articles of association, to be a member of the BBP, you need to be a property owner in some shape or form. Yeah, We think they're a really important player in the market because they drive a lot of what happens. They're the ones who specify the buildings, they're the ones who deliver the buildings, that were, and they drive that change
0: within the supply well, chain. Well, the person with the wallet has control, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, to a degree, they have control. Obviously, what needs to happen is they need to pass, as it were, responsibilities down to their supply chain to help them deliver on the commitments they have.
0: Mm. And in terms of those commitments, then, what are the members that you have committing to do? and, And how is that going a couple of years in?
1: Yeah, so really important question. One of the things that we focused on with our members around the climate commitment is really moving the needle. And there are a number of really important things about the BBP climate commitment to observe. First of all, that the BBP climate commitment essentially requires all of the signatures to produce a net zero carbon pathway. What that means is they need to set out how they're going to deliver on their net zero ambitions. That's the, the first thing. Then there are some really important details behind that commitment that's worth highlighting. First of all, that commitment covers whole life carbon so it includes both embodied carbon.
0: So explain what those phrases mean because at this point people sometimes glaze over when you've got whole life (laughs) embodied it sounds like different sorts of milk.
1: Yeah no absolutely so embodied carbon is really the carbon that's associated that's embedded within the building either in the construction materials or in the actual construction of the building. So it's
0: everything it's the the concrete it's the lifts it's the windows it's the carpet.
1: Absolutely, absolutely so. And so that's the embodied carbon. The operational carbon is the carbon that is produced associated so with the So That's your aircon, your lighting,
0: your heating, your computers.
1: Exactly so. So really important to include both of those things in our commitment. One of the second things that's really important is that our commitment covers scope one, scope two and scope three emissions. Okay, so you need to explain yeah. These yeah. this because <laughs> this, 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 this,
0: this, we're, we're getting into the weeds yeah. a little bit here.
1: You're going to ask me what those means absolutely rightly. So scope one and two are the emissions that the owner can control themselves. Scope three are the emissions they don't control but can potentially influence including those of their occupiers so for
0: my business that's how much of my staff emitting when they go down to the pub on a saturday evening that i can't control <laughs>
1: so, i couldn't comment on your business and so how many it, people go to the pub but in, potentially <laughs> to put it in context
2: when we did our carbon footprint because obviously we're a signature to the climate commitment yep. so when we did our carbon footprint we found that only 15 percent Of our carbon emissions could be directly controlled by us. So that's our scope one and scope two emissions. So basically, the gas consumption from the boilers we still have and the hot water heating and the electricity consumption in landlord areas. And those were our, that was basically amounted to 15% of our total emissions. The rest of it came down to occupier emissions, the embodied carbon from our developments. Ongoing use of the buildings from demolition and a bit of corporate emissions, and we were actually quite shocked at how small that percentage is. And that even value. with
0: construction works, even with development, it's only that. that so well, amount.
2: because we own and manage buildings as well as develop them. But yes, it's at, but 15% of our carbon emissions was sat within scope one and two, directly controlled by us. That's the value of the climate commitment, because what it's done is it's pushed a number of key property players to actually look really closely at their carbon footprint and say where do I need to focus my attention and what we've all found by doing it is yeah the direct the scope one and scope two is important but actually the embodied carbon and our occupier emissions are just more important arguably from a materiality point of view.
0: So materiality as in the materials you're using to build buildings?
2: No materiality is being most significant.
0: Yeah and you've set an internal carbon price one of the things I always say to people on, on these podcasts and on some others we've been doing recently as part of the Climate Crisis Challenge with Property Week, has been around what happens when carbon is priced properly. And that's something that GPE has actually been asking as well, which I was very infused to hear when, when this was announced. You have an internal carbon price. Explain, Janine Cole, how that works and, and how it affects decision making within GPE.
2: So again, this was part of the value of doing the carbon footprint exercise and actually then setting out our net zero carbon pathway for that purpose. Because what we found was that we would still have roughly 50% of our emissions left offset in 2030, even with our pretty challenging energy and carbon targets that we have in place. And so we wanted to do something more. And so, and to, to to drive the pace of change, to make things roll faster. And so what we did was we looked at an internal carbon price. We set it at 95 pounds per tonne. I believe it's still the highest in the industry. Things move so quickly in the industry at the moment. Mm. It may not be, but it was at the time. And what we have done as well is applied it to not only the embodied carbon of our development. So what we do is we apply it at practical completion of our developments. So 50 Finsbury Square, once we reach practical completion, we will audit the embodied carbon and we will charge the internal carbon price of £95 per tonne. And then what we also do is also charge it on our operational emissions. So that's that 15% scope one and scope two emissions I was talking about earlier on, because we actually went through a process with our sustainability committee of saying, do we just leave it on embodied carbon? The Sustainability Committee felt really strongly that actually, no, it should be applied to our operational emissions as well. And again, I believe we're the only property company doing that.
0: Mm. And Sarah Ratcliffe, from a in terms of affecting change, should this be something that the wider real estate and construction industries should start to apply more broadly?
1: Do you mean in relation to the carbon pricing? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting. And what is fascinating is that essentially businesses like GP and indeed a number of our other members are setting their internal carbon price they're doing that voluntarily at the moment to drive decision-making. So we're seeing more of the industry adopting that. One of the reasons they're doing it is to manage the risk going forward because there's an open discussion there about whether actually a carbon price will be legislated for in mm. the future.
0: Because obviously the EU has an international emissions trading scheme, doesn't it? And the carbon in that uh, is priced significantly lower than, than what you're setting out. Almost a you know more than a third less than... Yeah than what you're quoting, Janine.
2: And we had that very lively debate with our board. And I mean, actually, they are a hugely supportive board of everything that we do from a sustainability point of view. And actually, what we found was when we put the £95 per tonne through the development appraisal, it made a meaningful difference. Much mm. lower than I mean, that. it's also about it the, the
0: EU living in cloud cuckoo land with the price of carbon being what it is. Absolutely. It's the other obvious Ab- point.
2: Yeah. And you need it to be of a certain level for it actually to drive different decision and that again has played through at Fifty Finsbury Square, where our project management team are making it their mission to reduce what they pay into our decarbonisation fund, which is where we're putting the proceeds from the internal carbon price. Mm. It's like um, a big
0: sink fund, sinking fund. Yeah. Basically.
2: So that's and and they're they're basically ma- making it their mission to to drive that down, and they've actually apologised to me for doing that. Like, no, guys, this is this is the point. Mm
0: and how does how does that then play with shareholders?
2: The shareholders again, they've been very interested in what we've been doing around the internal carbon price and the decarbonisation fund. They've been very supportive. I mean more generally, the questions that we get from our shareholders now on e s g are just on another level. The variety of questions and the knowledge of our investor base has just moved exponentially mm. in the last 12 months and so sort of lots of questions around epc's decarbonization funds and how how we get there basically mm. how do we get to net zero carbon and, and sarah
0: in terms of your own support for the sector the training program you're running with with our good friends miles keeping and john lovell at hillbreak what's that hoping to achieve and what are some of the challenges in rolling it out during a pandemic
1: yeah so interestingly what we did with that Training program was developed in response to our members who specifically identified that there was a real need to upskill asset managers, and so the course is very much focused um, towards asset management and understanding how sustainability and climate change more specifically impacts investment decisions. To give you an idea of exactly how big that knowledge gap was. We went into the training programme thinking that we'd probably deliver about four training programmes involving about 80 people in the first year, in the first six months we've had now over 270 people register for that course so really where do they go to register
0: people want to register what website is
1: uh they can either go to the bbp website or to the hillbreak website where you can find more details about it there
0: okay Um, and what about i mean what about insurers i mean let's not leave them out of the party because they're a big part of well both the, uh, the problem and the solution in many respects, right?
1: Yeah, so when I speak to insurers about climate change, it's a really interesting discussion. Do they
0: pick up the phone to you?
1: Uh, yeah, they do. <laughs> and of course, one of the things about insurers is they love risk. That's what they deal in. That, yeah. That's what their business is. And so for them, this is very much a challenge about how they assess that risk, how they price that risk in, and how they then actually translate that into the services that they provide for the industry. Mm. I think probably where there are lots of different types of risk in relation to climate change physical risk, transition risk and liability risk. And I would say that probably the first one of those physical risk is where the insurers are are sort of focusing their attention. So what's the physical climate risk to portfolios, you know, whether it's flooding or Mm. overheating or subsidence. And there is lots of modelling going on around that at the moment in the insurance industry. Transition risk, which is the risk of transitioning to a low carbon economy. What's that's going to cost? They're also dealing with that by looking at modelling into the future carbon emission projections and so on. It's the liability that risks that interests me. Who's actually going to be liable when it comes to actually enforcing those insurance policies? And that's a really interesting question.
0: Mm. And Janine, from your perspective, what are some of the things that have come out of auditing that you've done?
2: So, I mean, the, the r- building risk as from a sustainability perspective, we're looking at it in a number of ways. So firstly, the trajectory for each of our assets so can we get our assets to what will be the minimum EPC rating, we believe, in 2030 of an energy performance certificate rating of a B? So it's plotting the trajectory for each of our assets. And then if we can't get it there, what's the solution? So in some cases, that might be disposing a, a disposal route for the asset. Yep. In others, it will be we, we will clearly look at how we redevelop it. And in an ideal world, that's what we'd like to do because we think it's important to retrofit the Existing buildings. So it's a trajectory for each asset. From a development perspective, there are also risks that we're looking at in terms of use of alternative materials. So Sarah was just talking about some of the challenges with the insurance industry. A big one that the industry is wrestling with at the moment is insurance of buildings, particularly residential buildings that use timber. Yeah, insurers Um, don't like
0: timber very much, do they?
2: No, they don't. And I think in part it's a reaction to um, To Grenfell. Grenfell and Having worked in health and safety for a number of years as well, I get it. I understand why they're risk averse to that, but there has to be a solution. And this is where industry collaboration comes in as well. And I know that the developers are coming together to work with the insurance companies about how do we get them comfortable with it. So them big
0: fees, generally, that helps with the warranties, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting because it's not... Is is there
0: a problem with the warranty providers, Janine, do you think?
2: there is an issue with what with warranties one of the things that the industry needs to do is move to more of a circular economy approach there's there's, a,
0: there's there's the there's the bell going there's the jargon <laughs> bell you can't hear it but it's definitely there explain what that means circular economy
2: so the circular economy is about how you reuse elements or, or at least in the property industry anyways about how you use elements of the building and keep it at its original form in as as close as you can and so if you're thinking about that from a development perspective. So 50 Finsbury Square, retaining the glazing would be one way of doing it. But also it, it, if if we can take that glazing off and use it in another building, one of the things that we are considering doing in one of our developments is taking the steel from that development, keeping it in its as close its to its current form as possible and moving it into another one of our developments so that we're not actually having to buy new materials. Hmm. And so that's sort of more of the circular economy approach. The issue is in how do you make sure that that product has a warranty?
0: So it's easier said than done, I'm guessing.
2: It is easier said than done. And again, what we know from sort of collaboration with other developers is that it's causing an issue across the industry, even in, and from a fire safety perspective, it even goes down to keeping, reusing paint and whether or not a manufacturer will stand by how fire retardant that paint is. Mm. and so there is there is a whole people in sustainability frequently you hear them talking about it's really complicated and people get quite impatient with us when we say it's complicated but it is (laughs) and that's why it's complicated because it is about finding new ways to do things Mm. and that needs innovation and that means you have to get it wrong sometimes
0: And that's part of the problem. I I mean, we'll be talking about this on a future podcast on the Housing Association side, but when people look, let's not get into it now, but I, I made a point. People thinking about waking watches, et cetera, et cetera, spending all of this money from leaseholders being spunk on waking watches because we've got this ridiculous aspiration of zeroing risk. And actually, we need to accept that very few buildings with sprinklers have ever burned down. And there has to be some balancing out of of risk versus reward spending hundreds of thousands of pounds chucking people around buildings at night it's probably a little bit unnecessary and, and similar as you've said from a commercial perspective what is the risk reward ratio of banning certain materials sarah rackliff what should we be doing at a government level to address some of these things because clearly if if the government turned around and changed building regs and made things like timber more more usable more people could use them and and more buildings would be would be potentially more sustainable?
1: Yeah, so I think to answer your question succinctly, what we need from government policy is to focus more on outcomes and less on inputs so we need to focus on the outcomes that we're trying to achieve. Quite a lot of policy, whether it's building regulations, planning, et cetera, focuses on inputs. And then basically you get a building that's built. You have no idea whether it actually performs as you expected it to. Yeah. So what I'd like to see from government policy is a more outcome oriented approach.
0: So mandating post-occupancy surveys and demanding some sort of data. I mean, that's something the industry could do, right? If you could lead that as, as BBP, you could create some sort of post-occupancy metric and we'll do it we'll yeah. do it when we finish so, the podcast I'll sit down and help I, you know, we work with IPT a long time ago I love working with IPT and actually Eco Pass was something that we'll, we'll go in on another podcast but but why EcoPass didn't work but actually this could be something with BBP to, to 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 lead on
1: yeah so funny you should say that Andrew but that's exactly what we've done in relation oh, awesome. that's to great. energy performance well, we can all so go home. yeah we can all go home now. not quite but um, one of the things that we've done at the Best Buildings partnership is actually essentially facilitate the development of a racing scheme called Neighbors UK it's involved literally over a decades worth of work leading up to the point where we've been able to launch that to the market that is a basically a rating scheme based on energy performance outcomes so it actually measures the building's energy in use and verifies that and you are required to publicly report it. So we're really excited so to launch that? that scheme. Well, um, really another really good question. So um in terms of actually getting the scheme off the ground, we as BBP have have led that, but we've led it alongside a really kind of collaborative effort with, first of all, a number of major developers. So we have 12, what we call design for performance pioneers you have actually pioneered this approach on major new office developments, the likes of GPE and many others amongst those. Mm. And they're actually doing this already.
0: So does this mean then when everyone gets properly back to shopping, you'll walk up and down Oxford Street in the summer and you won't see all these shops with the doors wide open and the aircon beaming out?
1: Well, wow. so, I mean, again, interesting question. I mean, that's obviously specifically that's most, the retail most sector. Consumers, but that's most yeah.
0: consumers. Mm. Most consumers' interaction with the commercial property industry is, is just that. It's walking into, well, obviously not top shop anymore, but other big fast fashion places that tend to anchor big destinations. You walk past and you feel, oh, that's quite nice. It's a nice, cool air con coming out of all these doors.
1: Yeah, so that is really touching upon the issue that we spoke about before. So lots of these big corporate occupiers have really high level climate ambitions. At the moment, what's really challenging is how those are translated into the everyday operation of the buildings that that they they actually are. And this is one of the
0: things that you're focused on as well is changing that owner-occupier relationship.
1: Yeah, so one of the other things coming out of our climate commitment, as Janine said, you know, scope three emissions, really, really important. Those occupier emissions can't address those without looking at the nature of the owner-occupier relationship. As a result, what we did at the BBP was to launch an owner-occupier forum to really kind of get to grips with some of those challenges and encourage greater collaboration and collective action amongst owners and occupiers.
0: Mm. And Janine, how is that going? Has there been any change of of sentiment from occupiers over the last years? Obviously, we're at this point in the property cycle where the power shifted a little bit, let's say, probably perhaps less in in your world than than in the pure retail space, but certainly the cyclicality of real estate where sometimes landlords are are in the driving seat, sometimes the occupiers are. It's very much occupier-led now, isn't it?
2: Very much so. And I think actually the nature of how we deal with our customers has really changed. I think even that shows the change that we don't talk about tenants anymore. We talk about occupiers or customers and it is about having that sort of customer focused approach. And that plays through into sustainability because what happens is we are engaging with the new occupiers of our buildings from the outset on sustainability, we're understanding, well, what are your sustainability ambitions? What do you need for your building? What do your, what do your team want? What what do they want? They want to come to work for an And what are they employer. saying to you
0: now? What are they saying to you now that they weren't saying to you a year ago?
2: Well, so some of them will be asking for will this building be net zero carbon? Some of them will be asking for a for Bream Excellent or Outstanding, which is one of the sort of well-known environmental auditing methods for mm. new build and refurbishment buildings. So they're looking for those ratings. They're also looking for well-being, sometimes accreditation, but often well just well-being measures. So cycling, showers, all those sorts of things really important to our occupiers. And I think it does vary. What we're finding is the sort of the larger occupiers, those who are sort of the more sort of flagship occupiers in the larger office buildings
0: well, obviously you know, Facebook's one of your biggest tenants probably your your biggest by...
2: we don't own that building anymore but no, but sorry. so they're not one of our they're not one of our occupiers at the moment, but I mean it is it's well, hopefully it's, it will be
0: again soon it's it,
2: it's part of their strategy are, um, are any
0: or any people asking you about you were talking a bit earlier about paints and, and solvents? Is anybody asking about the emissions from solvents, materials in buildings? Because again, obviously we're coming out of a global pandemic that's transmitted through the air. Air quality is is much higher up the agenda than it was a couple of years ago. But people don't seem to recognize that there's quite a lot of poisonous nastiness that comes out of glues, paints, carpets and that fresh car smell when you walk into a new building isn't always very good for your health.
2: No, and that's there's two things to say where that's concerned. So absolutely focus on air quality has really risen up the agenda in the sort of because of COVID. So there is an issue there in terms of energy consumption because what we've had to do is push much more air through our building, which generally means that the amount of energy that you're using to power the air conditioning tends to go up. So that is, unfortunately, a bit of a contradiction that we all just have to deal with, and that's that's life. But also the other thing that we're doing is we have installed air quality sensors um, within a number of our buildings as part of our approach to integrating technology across our portfolio. So, and what we're able to do is see what the air quality is doing across our buildings that's been really helpful in having the debate with our occupiers particularly as they've returned to the office because we've been able to reassure them we've been able to show them the air quality data Mm. from the office that they're occupying and show that sort of carbon dioxide levels are a particular level and the VOC's point that comes through what we're doing from well-being there are various again accreditation systems that help us deal with that so the well building standard being one of them and those standards have really sort of clear guidelines as to VOCs and how you deal with them. And again, this all goes into the mixing pot, pot. And I think it's, it's why if I sort of think about our strategy, health and wellbeing is in our strategy. And that's why, because it mm. all sort of interlinks together.
0: And Sarah let, let I mean, just draw things to a close. I mean, the obvious question here, we're talking to Great Portland Estates, one of the leading players in the UK commercial real estate market, but it's a massive huge sprawling long tail of companies that aren't REITs that aren't listed that aren't going to come to Propcast and be very open about what the challenges are as Janine has very gratefully done today what do we do about all of these other people individuals family offices people that aren't scrutiny to the public markets like gpe british land land so on how do you affect change with people that aren't going to ever become bbp members
1: Yeah, it's a really good question, Andrew, and one that we talk about at the BBP a lot about how we can use the leadership of our members to actually demonstrate to the rest of the industry what's possible. But also, I think a really important part of that is actually demonstrating what value it brings, not only quantifiable value to the market, but also value in terms of all the stakeholders. So I'm a big believer that if people are challenged about what they can do and what they can't do, show them what's possible.
0: Mm, that's a good that's a good point. And just just before we go, Jean, you've talked about the internal carbon price. We've talked about refurbishment. We've talked about timber, which we'll be covering on this podcast soon uh, in great depth because I'm a massive fan of getting that debate up there. I wanted to ask before we finish about the social impact strategy that you will be launching in November. So give us a bit of a heads up, give us a bit of an exclusive on PropCast and what that's going to contain uh, and, and what's led you to this point.
2: So we feel really strongly that social impact is an absolutely integral part of delivering a response to climate change because we need to support communities to ensure that they are climate change resilient, if you like. And so one of the pillars of our strategy is to deliver a lasting positive social impact and to create 10 million pounds worth of social value by 2030. And so what we're doing is looking at how do we do that? How do we make sure that we're looking at it as well from a sort of diversity and inclusion point of view? How do we get into those communities and support them? One of the things that we're really interested in doing is understanding people living in fuel poverty, because actually when you look at what's happening at the moment, so if you just look at what's happened with supply of gas, the people who will suffer the most from that will be the people who have the least, they're the people with the least choice And they're the people that we need to help support because ultimately if we don't do that, we'll never sort out the Mm. issues where environment is concerned. And so our social impact strategy is all about looking at that, looking at how we can make a contribution to support. Because actually London has some of the sort of pockets, there are pockets in London, some of the highest poverty in the UK. People don't always see that when they think about London. And obviously, as you'll know, sort of GPE is a very sort of London focused business. And so that that's obviously why why we're looking close to home. Mm. And so that's really what will happen. And so we've been looking at sort of borough statistics about sort of education and percentage of children in on free school meals and looking at where we really need to focus our attention to really support those communities. It's a really exciting piece of work mm. and I can't wait to launch it. And what
0: what, what will be some of the targets?
2: We don't know yet. That's why we're working through a baseline project at the moment, because it's important that the community needs drive the targets. It's very easy as a, as, a, as a property company to actually sit in your ivory tower and think actually what we need to do is A, B, C and D. But actually what's really important is to go out, consult with the communities and understand what matters to them and what will succeed the most. Hmm. So until we finish that needs analysis, we don't know what our targets are.
0: We'll look forward to learning more about that and hopefully Toby Courtauld will join BossCast very soon to tell us about that. Just before we go, Sarah Ratcliffe, for anyone that isn't a BBP member, 30 seconds, three reasons why they need to become a member.
1: Three reasons to become a member of the BBP. Well, I think firstly, it's the knowledge sharing it's actually sharing knowledge between the members about what works, what doesn't work, why. That's that's the first reason. I think the second reason is all about actually developing professional understanding to improve the performance of our building. Practical things that the BBP does to help support that, like produce guidance notes, toolkits, really practical tools that can be used. And the third thing really is to be part of an organisation that is really at the forefront of transforming the industry and driving change.
0: Well, that's good. Fantastic. Thank you for that, Sarah Radcliffe from the Better Building Partnership. Janine Cole from Great Portland Estate. Very much. Very grateful to have both of you here. Thank you so much for coming in and and for a great conversation. Uh, If you'd like to subscribe to Propcast, please go to Apple or Spotify, type Propcast into your Uh, into the box Um, press send search enter whatever and it will come up and do share these podcasts with your contacts with your teams with your advisors get them to sign up and subscribe and do please get in touch if there's something that you'd like to discuss with us thank you very much for listening I've been Andrew Teacher from Blackstock take care bye-bye